The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Chapter 10. Well, this past Tuesday, the search engine Google experienced a significant surge, about 500% increase of a specific search on Google this past Tuesday. Does anyone know what that search was? How do I move to Canada? (laughs) Super Tuesday resulted in both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump winning seven states. And the reality sank in for a lot of people that it is probable that one of these two people will become our next president. And the website on immigration to Canada is flooded. I'm not kidding you. I tried to go on yesterday and I couldn't get on. It would not connect. (laughs) My connection kept timing out. And on their website, according to ABC News, is a polite Canadian disclaimer that says, you may experience delays while using the website, eh? It doesn't say A. Just kidding. Doesn't say A. But the signs are becoming clearer that one of these two candidates will probably become the United States commander in chief. And no matter where you land politically, you are at the least uneasy about that sign. Because it reveals to us our fear over who will be in control of us. And it reveals to us potentially our lack of trust in politics or in the leadership structure or in government. So what do we do with these signs that we're facing? Well, we might become paralyzed with fear and just freeze. (gasps) Or we could find a detour, take a way out, like move to Canada But today's passage, as we're looking at 1 Samuel 10, also contains specific signs, signs of God's new leadership structure, signs of a new king and a new kingdom. And before we go there, we have to ask the question, what's the purpose of a sign? Well, here's a definition I think it's Webster, that defined a sign as this. It's helpful for me. A sign is an object, quality, or event whose presence or occurrence indicates the probable presence or occurrence of something else. Okay? So when you have a sign, it usually indicates the presence of something else. Let me give you some examples. When you see a stop sign there's probably an indicator, hopefully, that when you have a stop sign, you have someone that's going to be stopping. Hopefully. When you're on Highway 41 heading north or south, you are going to be inundated with billboards, tons of billboards, these signs. And these billboards are indicators that there's probably an actual business or service behind that billboard. Not literally, but behind that billboard. It's a sign. 
when you see your kids rub their eyes, it's an indicator of what? They're tired. They're fatigued. And just FYI, for those of you who don't know me very well, when you see me rub my face, which I do, I guess I do it pretty often. I don't even know I'm doing it sometimes. I just want to be clear. I'm not angry. That's, that's not what I'm doing there. Usually when I rub my face, it's a sign of like inner confusion. Like I'm, I'm confused about something. I'm trying to figure something out in my head. So that's what's going on when I rub my face. So the sign, whether it be a billboard or an event or a rubbing of the face, it points to something else going on. And in the Bible, what's the purpose of a sign? It's the same thing. A sign is intended to point to a greater reality. Signs are assurances that what is happening, the event, the occurrence, indicates the presence of someone or something else. And every single sign in the Bible assures us to see the presence or the nature of the Lord. Some examples, signs you might see in the Bible. The Garden of Eden, a sign that's an indicator of God wanting relationship with his creation. The flood, a sign, an indicator of God's judgment against sin. Noah and the ark, a sign, an indicator of God's grace and patience and continued plan for his people. And the cross, a sign, an indicator of God's love, his forgiveness, his commitment to his people. Signs are difficult for us because in our brokenness, one of two things happens when we encounter a sign. First, we forget that there's something or someone else behind it. And we start maybe worshiping the sign and not what's behind it. The sign becomes our final destination. This can happen with our emotions, with feelings. When you experience anxiety, someone might say, you know, I'm, I'm just an anxious person. Well, you know what? There's more going on there. You're not looking behind and asking, why are you anxious? Same thing could go on for anger. I'm just, I just have anger. I just struggle with anger. Hmm. Well, that's a sign. Anger is probably a sign of something else going on. We're building a church building, hopefully, Lord willing, in a few, in a few years. You see how church buildings, we can start stopping at the sign and forget to look beyond it? A church building is not intended to be an end, but to speak to something beyond it, and hopefully the gospel that's going on within that building. And even when we say, I'm a Christian, we might not ask, well, what actually does that mean? What's behind that? That's the first mistake we can make, is just stop at the sign. The other mistake we can make is we can assume the wrong motivation or or person or presence behind the sign. And honestly, I've got to be honest, when I studied this passage on Saul, that happened for me. When I initially read this passage, I knew who Saul was, and I was looking for signs that were indicating that he was going to be a faulty king. Well, guess what? God showed me a different sign behind what we see in this passage. 
We might also like mistake when we get, we get cut off on the road, mistake, hey, that must mean that that person's out to get me. Or when my family, my, my wife and I experienced a miscarriage a few years ago, I remember making the wrong assumption and thinking, is God punishing me for something I've done? Or when, with our children, we tell them on Sunday, you know what? No TV time on Sunday. We don't do TV. They might misinterpret that sign and say, instead of dad caring for us, dad must hate us. But signs in scripture, again, are intended to bring assurance of his presence. And in today's passage, God provides us three specific signs assuring us that we might recognize his kingdom on earth and the king that he intends to put into place. And he's asking us, when we see these three signs, to respond in trust and in faith. So when we're in 1 Samuel 10, and we're going to walk through this passage in stages because it's a long chapter. But if you haven't been with us, I want to just catch you up a little bit. At this point in the story, 1 Samuel, Israel, the nation of Israel, God's people, has demanded a king because they want to be like everyone else. They don't believe God enough to be a king. And Samuel, God's spokesperson, has warned the people and told them, hey, you know what? You want an earthly king, some bad things could happen. Israel says, forget it. We're ignoring your warning. We want what we want, and we want it now. And the Lord, in his grace, gives them what they want and chooses a man from the smallest tribe of Israel, a man named Saul, to be Israel's king. Saul wakes up one morning and finds that his father's donkeys are gone, and he's going out to look after to find them. And like Pastor Dan preached last week, God's providence used donkeys to lead Saul to the prophet Samuel. And all week I've been singing, who let the donkeys out? Hee-haw, hee-haw. That's what I've been doing. I'm just so bizarre. But he leads Saul to the, cho- to, to the prophet Samuel. And as we pick up in chapter 10, God wants to assure everyone involved in this setting up of the kingdom, that God is involved and that this is his kingdom he's establishing. So we pick up here in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Before we do that, let's pray. Prayer is a sign that points to a greater reality that we are a people in need. So let's pray. Father, as we come before your word, we acknowledge that we do, we have nothing without you. But we could go to these words and they could be stories on a page. But we ask, Lord, that your spirit would do a work in how we read this story, that it may become an opportunity for life change. So use 1 Samuel 10, Father, to establish your kingdom here on earth, to continue that work. Change us, Father, by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So let's read together 1 Samuel chapter 10. I'm just going to start with verses 1 to 8. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his, Saul's head, and kissed him and said, 
Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison or signpost of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. There's a lot there. We're not going to have time to explain every detail of that passage, but I just want us to do something for a second. I want you to put yourself in Saul's shoes for a moment. One morning, you're waking up, And your dad says to you, Saul, I need you to go find the donkeys. They're gone. You head out and you wake up the next morning and oil is being poured on your head and you are being named prince over God's people. What thoughts might be going on in your mind? Saul has got to be asking How did I find myself here? And God demonstrates the first sign of what his kingdom looks like. When you're looking for God's kingdom, look for his grace initiative. Grace initiative. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Throughout scripture, whenever you see grace, you always see God being the one who makes the first move. God is always the first mover when it comes to grace. That's the grace initiative. And God is giving Saul assurances, again, signs, that this whole whirlwind that's going on around him is an already established plan instituted by God. How does he do that? First, he gives Saul a prophet, Samuel. God's mouthpiece to him. And Samuel speaks directly to Saul these words, has not the Lord anointed you? And he uses oil to anoint Saul to say, you are set apart. You are a holy instrument of God's. This isn't anything Saul has done. And then he kisses Saul to indicate that someone greater is acknowledging someone lesser. Again, this isn't because of where Saul comes from. 
This is because of God. Secondly, God uses three specific circumstances to demonstrate his active hand in making all this happen. First, he has Saul go to Rachel's tomb where some fellow brothers, some Benjaminites, will tell Saul, hey, the donkeys are fine. Your dad's just worried about you. And in that, Saul hears there's greater concerns than donkeys. God is using these words to direct Saul toward greater and more important matters like the kingdom. The second sign is at the hill of God, Gibeath Elohim. Here, there are men who are bringing their items to, to worship, to bring up to the hill, the holy place, the house of God, bring to the priests of God wine and bread and a sacrifice. And they hand Saul two loaves of bread And by taking the holy bread, it meant that Saul is now taking, like a priest, a holy position as God's appointed, accepting the call that he's been given. You see, so far, Saul is not making anything happen here. It's all happening to him. And the third sign, which we'll cover more in depth in the next section, shows God's hand in changing Saul into another man. God's initiative, God's grace is demonstrated in these signs, reminding Saul that he brings nothing to the table, but that God has already set the table. Some of us might be facing a similar predicament. Out of nowhere, we are being asked to do something that's beyond our comprehension or understanding. And we're asking the question, how did I find myself here? You're scared. You don't know what to do. I don't know if it's as a parent. I don't know if it's in a new job or a new role. You don't know what to do. How did I find myself here? What I would encourage you to do, those of you who are in this predicament, is look for the signs of God's grace. Look for his grace initiative. It will bring you comfort and relief when doubt comes over you. I remember our time in seminary when we were called down to St. Louis and we, my wife and I, were asking a similar question. How did we end up here? What are we doing here? And what we looked at, what God reminded us of was his grace initiative. We sold our house in three weeks, probably six months after the housing bubble burst. God's initiative, no question. We got to St. Louis and our son had to go into the NICU for three weeks. That was scary enough and God preserved him through the care that he was provided down there. But also, financially, we didn't have to pay a dime for that intensive, expensive care. Because as students, we were on state insurance. In the NICU, the NICU coordinator, family coordinator, just hands me out of the blue a stack like this thick of Chick-fil-A meals that we ate for the next year and a half as a family. And I just remember also sitting at a Barnes & Noble with tears in my eyes going, I can't find a job. How are we going to survive? I, I don't have a job yet. I'm in St. Louis. I don't have a job. 
And I remember typing this email and hitting send to this random counseling center. I didn't know anybody there. I just shot it out to them. God provided us with a job that paid for all of our time, including tuition to seminary. God showed his hand of initiative and his grace. And it was this hand and these signs that reminded us to continue in our call in spite of the difficulties that we were experiencing. That might be you, again, asking the question, how did I get here? What has he said to you to confirm that he is behind everything that's going on right now in your life? Are you listening to the people around you that God has put around you that are saying things out of the blue which are strangely fitting and encouraging to you? Are you paying attention to the ways in which your needs are being provided for seemingly out of nowhere? Is there a calling from God where he's asking you to take the loaves of bread that are being handed to you? That's God's grace initiative. He's asking you to come to the already set table. Listen for his lead and respond with faith and trust. How does Saul respond? Well, we see, we'll see in the next verses, he begins his journey. He doesn't get stuck at each of the signs, but he continues in obedience to the Lord's lead. I can't imagine, like, if someone were to come up to Saul after he became king and maybe said to him, hey, Saul, what are your, what are your qualifications to be a king? And Saul saying, um, well, one day I, uh, I was looking for some lost donkeys. Um, the next day, God said I was king. Grace initiative. But we not only see God's kingdom coming through that initiative, we also see it in a changed life. Look with me at verses 9 to 16. When Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, Saul did not tell him anything. Gibeah, the place where this final sign happens, is Saul's hometown. And in chapter 9, we are told something pretty remarkable. We're told that Saul is the most handsome man in all of 
Israel, not just his town, but all of Israel, he is the most handsome man. And he's coming in, the most handsome man, into his hometown. I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, but we might be able to assume something about a handsome man. Most handsome people I know. They probably have a little bit of a strut about them. Well, you can't tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman's man. No time to talk. You know, like they just, they have a strut about them. I am not a handsome man, so I do not have that strut, but I've seen it in other people. And most handsome people know they're handsome and usually have a way about them, usually, that's cool and collected. Saul is suave. The girls probably love to look at him. The guys probably have a streak of envy when they see him. Parents hope their daughters might catch his eye, the bachelor. And as promised in the previous passage, Saul arrives at his hometown and he encounters a literal band of worshipers playing these instruments and singing loudly and boldly and almost uncontrollably to the Lord. And suave Saul, all at once, experiences God's Spirit rushing upon him, and he joins in the song of the prophets. For those of you from smaller towns, think about for a second how well people know you. And God turns that image people have of Saul completely upside down. And his response, him prophesying, probably wasn't suave at all. I don't know if you ever remember in Seinfeld when Elaine would dance. I'm guessing it was kind of like that. <laughs> What's going on, you know? It, the other the way I can think about it is it's like taking the star basketball player of a team, the most popular guy in school, and making him the most extraordinary ballet dancer. I mean, it's so different. And verse 9 tells us God gave him another heart. And people see evidence of something else within Saul making this change happen. When all who knew him previously are asking, in verse 11, the question, what has come over the son of Kish? This is evidence of God's spirit at work in Saul. And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is used to indicate God's representative. The Holy Spirit comes upon people as God's representative, as God's leader, as someone who is going to fulfill God's commission. And as God's establishing his kingdom, he's saying to all of us, this king is going to be a charismatic leader, not charismatic like Donald Trump, charismatic because he's filled with my charisma, my spirit. And it's not his own motivations that are going on. This is God at work. The king, being led by God's spirit, would act according to God's will and not according to their natural being. We see this evidenced even at the end of the passage 
when Saul says nothing to his uncle about the promise of becoming a king. Initially, when I read that, I again read with the, the colored eyes that, you know what, Saul is, he's going to end up being a bad king. So this must be in his cowardice and him being, him being kind of quiet and kind of sheepish and cowardly. I, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Saul, if he had received news of becoming a king, can you imagine containing that kind of news with a family member? It's almost not possible. This passage shows us evidence of a restrained and spirit-led Saul who's not jumping the gun, but following God's spirit and prompting not to speak. He doesn't boast about anything, but instead keeps the kingdom of God and revealing that kingdom in God's hands, not his own. God's kingdom comes in the second sign, lives changing. And you see, another Benjaminite named Saul is found in the New Testament. Saul, after doing whatever it would take to extinguish Christians from the face of the earth, undergoes a dramatic transformation. And in Acts 9, after seeing the Lord Jesus himself, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and scales fall from his eyes. And his name is changed from Saul to Paul. No longer is Paul anti-Christ. As a result of God's spirit, the people closest to Paul watch him become not only a supporter of the gospel and the cause of Christ, but actually commit his life to serving Jesus and there's evidence of Paul's change in how he describes himself in Scripture. As he describes his previous life, he uses I verbs, like he's the subject of things. I went, I did, I committed, I did all this. But after his conversion, which I find really curious, most of the time, Paul doesn't use I language. He talks about what God has done in him. An example would be Galatians 1, 13 to 16. Look, look at this contrast. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. As I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But he who has set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, grace initiative, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. See the difference in language? He also says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And see the grace initiative. All this is from God. Those of us here who, through God's grace initiative, have embraced faith in Jesus, in the New Testament, it looks different. The Holy Spirit looks different. No longer is it just one representative representing the entire people. We are all his representatives. We all have his spirit residing within us, never to leave us. So I ask us the question, how are we changing? 
or how are we resisting change? Because this is a great opportunity for us in terms of evangelism to display God's kingdom signs to those who don't know Christ. We have the opportunity to share with others the change that has occurred in our lives as a result of God's spirit. Think about the election. Someone might say to you, you don't seem so upset about all that's going on. Why aren't you upset about what's happening here? Why aren't you moving to Canada? I have Romans 13, which says that every authority that's been put in place has been put in place there by God. You can demonstrate the change. And we, like Paul, can speak in God terms instead of me terms. And we have the opportunity to allow God's spirit to do things in us that are completely out of character. Like talking to a person on a plane about Jesus or initiating a conversation with the server at the restaurant about their hope. Completely out of character. Not only do we see the signs of God's kingdom evident in his grace initiative and in changed lives, we also see the final sign. We see a humble king. Let's read together 1 Samuel 10, 17 to 27. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But Saul held his peace. We see in this final sign what I didn't initially see when I first studied this passage. We see a humble king. And I wanted to real quickly define humility. Probably have done it before. Just to remind us, C.J. Mahaney defines it well when he says, humility is an accurate view of who we are in light of who God is. An accurate view of who we are in light of who God is. And so first, in order to cultivate humility, God wants us to see who he is. 
And in this passage, God begins by reprimanding the people of Israel for rejecting them, rejecting him as their king. In their pride, they believed that their status as a nation was because of their own doing and not the results of God's hand of salvation. And he says to them, how forgetful you all are at remembering what I've done for you. And then he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you, Israel. And so when you're wanting a king, I'm going to be the one to choose your king. And so they go through this process of lots. And we don't know exactly how the, what the process looked like, the drawing of straws, the shortest stick, the rolling of dice. We don't know exactly what this looked like in the process of lots. But I, I talked to a friend of mine who knows math way better than me, and uh, I just confirmed that, okay, so the odds of Saul winning this lottery was probably something like, conservative estimate, one in about 500,000 that he would be picked for king. It's probably as likely to get struck by lightning and get picked. Or to use a sports metaphor, it is like, like the kicking team doing the onside kick, actually recovering the onside kick six or seven times in a game. Never, that's never going to happen. So if you can think about it, gathered together are at least 250,000 people, maybe more. You think about these Packer stadiums filled with this many people. And you know what they do at the stadiums when they, they announce, hey, we've got a winner of a Ford F-150, the person sitting in... Da, da, da. That's kind of what's happening here. And so the first round, section 12... The tribe of Benjamin, you can hear everybody go, ugh, ugh, Benjamin, our king's going to come from Benjamin, the smallest and the most quarrelsome of the tribes of Israel. Your king's going to come from there. No one's happy. The rest of the tribes sit down. Row 14, the clan of the Matrites. Okay getting closer. And seat 24, the son of Kish, Saul. If you can imagine a huge stadium filled with people, everyone sitting down, looking at that seat. And guess what's at that seat? No one. No one is sitting there. And everyone looks at surprise. I mean, the odds of no one sitting there. How is this possible? It's because God is going to be the one to do the revealing, the unveiling. Another evidence of suave Saul being a changed man. This tall, handsome man is crouched on the outside of the camp, humbly anticipating his entrance as king. Saul who now knows God's grace through these signs, who has seen God's spirit at work in him, doesn't reveal himself, yeah, that's me, but instead is humbly revealed. They that know God will be humble. They that know themselves cannot be proud. And 1 Peter 5, 6 reminds us, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. 
And God calls the king out, and Saul stands, towering before them all. And they're looking up at him, and they marveled. Long live the king! Look at that guy! And Samuel reads the king's job description, and here the kingdom is established. We're going to see very soon that Saul will quickly lose sight of this humility and begin to take matters in his own hands, but that's not what's happening in chapter 10. And the reason we're going to see Saul fail is because it's going to reveal our need for a better king. Jesus never lost sight of his humility. He came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, a humble servant king. And he would not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, rejected by men. There would be lots cast in his presence, but they wouldn't be for his kingship. They would be for his clothing as he was stripped naked and hung on a cross. The king would be brought before the people, but instead of him hearing them say, long live the king, they would shout, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Worthless fellows would shout at him like they shouted at Saul and say, if you're the son of God, save yourself. But like a sheep before its shearers is silent, he didn't open his mouth. He would hold his peace like Saul held his. And in the sign of the cross, God's humble king would be revealed, towering above them on a cross with words of grace on his lips. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And above his head, God would reveal his declaration of his kingdom. This is the king of the Jews. Are you wanting desperately to be noticed and approved by God or by men because of your abilities or your accomplishments? Are you looking for opportunities to be upfront, to be seen? Here's what the gospel asks of us, friends. See the cross and see the king's job description, humble, obedient, laying down his life. Follow your king's lead. Let God's initiative be at work in you. Let his spirit change you into new men and new women and walk humbly knowing that everything you do for his kingdom may not be revealed here, but revealed later as we're exalted in heaven with him. Sally Lloyd-Jones in her children's devotional Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing tells the story of a group of POWs during World War II. They were building a railway for the enemy army and after their day's work, the shovels were counted, and the enemy guards were enraged. One shovel is missing. The prisoners were lined up, and orders for them were made to stand there until someone admitted they'd stolen the shovel, and no one said it was them. The guard shouted, someone stole the shovel. Admit it. Still, no one budged. The guard threatened to kill everyone standing there unless someone owned up to what's going on here. And at last, one man stepped forward 
and said he had done it. The guard shot him right then and there. And later, at the guardhouse, the tools, the shovels were recounted. No shovel was missing. The innocent and humble man had sacrificed his life to save the others. May each of us be the signs of a coming kingdom demonstrating God's grace initiative, going to those who undeservedly need Christ and allowing his spirit to change us and do things in us that we couldn't see us doing ourselves and laying down our lives just like our King, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it does work to change us and doesn't return void. Continue to do your change in our hearts. You are the initiator. You are the only one who can cause kingdom change in our hearts. And so continue to do your work in us. May we be obedient to follow and be filled with your spirit. And Father, may we also be willing to lay down our lives and to humble ourselves, even to the point of a daily cross, to see others before ourselves, and to serve them with love and with gladness. Do this work in us, in Christ's name. Amen.